Dear listeners, welcome to today's episode of That's My Niche, a podcast introducing professionals across all industries on how they carved out their own niche. I'm Nina Dorfer, founder of Le Bureau, a Paris-based design studio for technical knit development, my very own niche, so to say. In today's episode, I jumped on a call with Jeffrey Greenberg, who's the Associate Sales Director of the Jewish National Fund in Florida. I randomly met Jeffrey during a trip to Miami and we got into an exploration of business, sales scenarios and how to deal best with them. Jeffrey didn't hold back with his experiences and insights. Meanwhile, I found myself soaking everything up like a sponge. When do I ever get first-hand business advice from a sales expert? The natural consequence was to ask him to come on a podcast episode and share his perspective with a large audience on the psychology of business meetings, the social aspect of closing a deal, and how persistence can result in flattery. With a background in advertising, Jeffrey never planned on doing sales for a baseball team nor fundraising for a nonprofit organization, but his life took its course. For him, it combines the social aspect with the business world, resulting in pleasant experiences for all parties involved. Jeffrey is known in his community as a person to connect with. He loves to introduce people and makes a positive impact on the personal growth. Through his work, he relates to his Jewish roots and does his best for Israel's future. Without further ado, please enjoy episode number two of That's My Niche. And now, over to Jeffrey. Ding dong. Hello. You did it. Oh my God, it's working! Great work! We're doing we're doing some awesome uh, technologically advanced things here, Miss Mia. Pretty exciting stuff. I know, Jeffrey. I can't fathom that we made it on this call. Um, Me too. Seriously, I hope you're well. I hope you're you beat the flu that you had. Thankfully, it wasn't the flu. It was just a pretty serious cold so my voice sounded like i was um about 11 years old and born with the the most congested nasal cavity you've ever heard in your life but much better now you did sound like an 11 year old but <laughs> yeah it wasn't good i know <laughs> yeah this this is just my normal voice now. This is my beautiful podcast ready voice. Hope you're ready. I'm just going to hit you with the first question. Great. What's your niche, Jeffrey? My niche. So, you know, I like to think that I'm sort of a jack of all trades, master of none type personality where you can kind of throw me into any situation and I'll be able to make uh, a good result come alive. But, you know, if I had to really boil it down, I would say that my niche is that I am a professional schmoozer. That suits you so well. That suits you <laughs> yes. so well. So where were you born? 
I was born in Tallahassee, Florida, which most people don't know is the actual capital city of the state of Florida here in the U.S. Most people think it's Miami or Orlando, but those are just our tourist destinations. Tallahassee is actually the uh, capital. Thanks for that kernel of wisdom right there. Um, You're very welcome. I know we have an international audience, right? I know you wanna you wanna educate, you wanna educate. Were you did you also grow up in Tallahassee? I did. Uh all the way through grade school and then I went to university at the University of Florida. Um which was back in two thousand and seven. Kind of crazy, hard to believe. I know, it's a long time ago. I know. Don't have me thinking about that. <laughs> what do your parents say? What do your parents say about you as a little boy? What were you like? Me as a little boy. Uh, my parents tell me that I was a handful, that I had an incredible amount of energy, and it was impossible for them to keep up with me. And, uh, yeah, I was a little bit of a of a troublemaker, of a hellraiser. Who would think? I mean, you really don't look like a troublemaker, but... You know, I I grew up, thankfully, for for everyone's sake, for society's sake, for the world. I don't think that uh, eight-year-old Jeffrey would be good at this juncture in my life. I, no. But did you enjoy being eight-year-old Jeffrey a lot? As far as I've been told, I I really enjoyed my young years, yes. Don't you remember? No, I honestly, and I know a lot of people say like, oh, I remember when I was eight or nine or 10. I really do not remember much from that time in my life, very little, which, you know, I'm, I'm just a forward thinker, you know? I like to look towards the future. I'm not really, uh, too focused on the past. Yeah, I mean, why am I even asking this question? <laughs> right, come, come on, Nina, get with it. I know, so what were you like <laughs> as a teenager? <clears throat> so as a teenager, I uh, was very focused on school and my uh, sports where I was the lacrosse captain. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the game lacrosse. I don't know how, popular it is. I do. They have these um, bats and then they, uh, they, no, they're not bats. No, they are, um, they're like um, sticks with uh, nets at the end where you you catch the ball and not hit it. So it's a very, it's an amazing game. Um, And I was the captain of my high school's team and that and school were my main focus in my teenage years. I enjoyed it. Not many memories of teenage years either. Oh no, I have plenty of memories there. Um, you know, I was always like uh, in the more um, social groups. You know, I, I was involved with our. Um, debate team and our like key club and the like I said the sports element I was sort of an overachiever in my middle school and high school days I don't know what happened to me I think I got burned out at 17 and I never recovered 
<laughs> but uh, I, I was a, I have a lot of fond memories from, from the teenage years, definitely. So what is it like in high school? Can you choose which classes you join? For example, the debate team, is that obligatory or is that? Uh, no, so that, that's, uh, that's like an after school um, social club. It wasn't an actual class. Mm -hmm. So the classes, I mean, at least in my school, they were pretty much assigned to you, but you would be put into a, whatever level you tested into. So there was like AP English or intermediate English or like basic. So basic, based on your record of work up to that school year grade would where that would determine where you, what class you would be in. Mm. Mm. So I had, uh, I had good grades and I was focused on school for sure. When I, moved transitioned over to college my focus definitely was not on the school it was more on the social element of things that does not surprise me <laughs> <laughs> i'm definitely a social person i enjoy uh working with people and being in a in a group setting so that's my that's part of my niche so did you what did you say you studied Marketing? I studied advertising, yes. Advertising, Advertising, yeah. and I had a uh, minor in sport management. So how did you come up with that? Did you, see, go, did you go see some colleges and you were like, yeah, I think I'll fit into advertising. That, that's my thing. <laughs> no, not at all. When I was 17 and looking at colleges, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that college was the next step. So I just went to schools that were in, in the area and then that were, um, you know, highly sought after. I mean, the University of Florida is a well-distinguished um, university. It's always in the top 10 of U.S. public colleges. And I just said, if I could get into the school, then that's it, I'm going. And that, is how I chose UF. It was also close to Tallahassee, so I was able to get away from home, but not too far away, which is good for me. And, you know, the educational part of it in terms of which major or which minor I chose, I didn't really know uh, what I wanted to do with school until I was in my second or third year of college, which is when I picked up the sport management minor. That's when, I, that's when I determined, okay, I really want to go down this path of working in sports. At least that's what I thought at the time. So what was the biggest lesson you learned in high school, uh, in college, about, about yourself or about others? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I learned a lot about so I'll answer the first part about myself first and then about others. So about myself, I recognized that if I wanted to actually be successful, um, it was more than just putting my head down and studying and getting a good grade. It, there's a lot of extracurricular um, things you have to do in order to, you know, make it in this world. So unless you 
and, and unfortunately for me, I wasn't the um, like a Einstein level of genius. Where there's there's certain people who can just get by with their pure intelligence, but I uh, fit into the more you know masses level of everyone needs to work with one another to become the best version of themselves. So I I really learned that in college. Um, in terms of other people, you know, I I learned a lot about how to work with all different types of people and then it's not just personalities but it's also different nationalities different um you know what cultures you know growing up in Tallahassee there was not a whole lot of diversity not a very international place so I being on UF's campus you know I met for the first time a lot of people that looked very different than me and had and gave them different worldviews so that was a, a real big learning experience for me. After graduation, what did you do? After graduation, I had this dream of working in sports, uh, but it was, at the, it was a tough thing to get into. So I uh, interned at the University of Florida Athletic Association, and that was an unpaid job. So I took on a full-time paid position with a local ballet service so i was the assistant manager of a ballet company at the local hospital which was a uh, very challenging job and i learned a lot through that experience in terms of how to um, problem solve and work with people that are pretty angry because I was like the first line of defense from if a valet took a car and ran it into a pole, they would yell at me, not the valet, because I was the manager. So it, it definitely was my first uh, real lesson of how to develop tough skin, <laughs> which is serving me very well. Yeah. They run cars into poles? That's what they do? That, ha that happens? Oh yeah, valets make mistakes all the time. They, my, I had valets who stole things. Um, I had a valet once who actually stole a car and drove to another state. That was a fun one. Yeah. Oh um, oh, wow. So, you know, I, and it was interesting because I was the guy who, you know, I was just graduating college. I was 21 years old. I'm like, well, I'm, and the worst part is that this is at a hospital, so people didn't want to be there to begin with, you know? I mean, they're visiting loved ones that are sick, or no one, go, no one really goes to a hospital for a uh, fun vacation, let's put it that way. And, you know, I was the guy with the clipboard that said, I'm so sorry that this happened to your car. I can do nothing for you. You need to fill out this clipboard and file a complaint. And that was just the way it was, but obviously people didn't want to hear that. And so I developed a good uh, feel for people and figuring out how to mitigate the damage in terms of their, uh, how, to, how to just decompress their anger a little bit, you know? I got pretty good at that. Okay, so you were very understanding, I see. Yeah, understanding, a good listener, uh, all skills that I've used since in terms of my 
like once I really got going with my career. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into the sports industry? So I was very fortunate to have met a lovely lady in Miami, Florida, uh, when I was visiting one one weekend, and she knew that I wanted to work in sports, and, uh, and she is, somehow was on this um, Miami Marlins uh, email listserv where they she saw an email saying, "Hey, the Marlins are having a career fair. You know, bring your resumes." And she forwarded me the email, and I threw my suit in the car and drove. At the time, I was living in Tampa. I drove from Tampa to Miami and showed up at the career fair. And, uh, you know, I actually wanted to work with the marketing department because that was sort of my background in school. But the line was crazy long at the marketing department. So I was walking around and I saw the sales table there and there was no one at it. So I walked up to it, put my portfolio on the table, sat down and kicked my feet up on the table and looked at the guy and said, talk to me about sales. And that's how the conversation started. And uh, he was first, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, this is a, a job career day, right? This is a, you know, you should be, we're here to do an interview. And I said, I know, I'm interviewing, talk to me. And he said, oh, you put your feet down and we'll, we can talk. I said, okay, fine. And we started getting into just a friendly conversation. And before I knew it, the VP of sales, I don't know how they, he texted him somehow and like without me noticing. And all of a sudden the VP of sales shows up and sits down with us. I said, oh, this is getting a little bit more serious now. And we started talking more. And to be honest with you, I didn't really think much of it. I was really focused on the marketing gig. And I, after the sales table, I got up, said, Thank, nice to meet you, and then went to the marketing table and did what I said, a quote unquote, real interview. And a week later, I got a call from the Marlin sales team. And so I picked up my stuff to move to Miami for that job, which was uh, unexpected. I would have never thought that I would work in sales. You know, that was not part of my uh, um, childhood dream or like, um, you know, college experience, but it turns out that I was well suited for the position. So I moved and that was the beginning of the sports career. So I worked for the Marlins for two years as a sales executive. Do you want to briefly explain what the Marlins are? Sure. Yeah, I can be happy to do that. So in America, we have this little game called baseball. Uh, you know, it's like cricket, but more American style. <laughs> <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Um, you know, we have a great tradition here in this country where uh, it's literally, it's called America's pastime because people will go to a baseball game for about four hours that's how long the games kind of last. And in terms of how much the game is watched, I'd say maybe 10 minutes. But for the other three hours, we're all having a great time drinking, socializing, meeting people. So the game of baseball 
is both a cultural, um, you know, party and fun time for Americans, but it's also some people take it as seriously as a, as a game to take seriously. Is that a long-winded answer to your question? That's the Marlins. So the Marlins are the Miami professional team. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and how much time did you end up working for the Marlins on the sales team? About two years. And I transitioned from the starting job, which is a inside sales representative, to a higher level position, which was a group sales executive. So the main difference is that I would, was working with clients on specific experiences throughout the game. So I, in my long-winded answer about baseball, there's a whole business component to it, which is um, bringing out your colleagues or clients to a game to talk business while the game is happening at the same time. So I was the person who helped coordinate those experiences for people. And is that where you learn about schmoozing and selling? What were you selling? That was pretty much the beginning of my uh, accepting the fact that I was a good schmoozer. Up until that point, I wasn't uh, too sure of myself, but I became comfortable doing it there. But what I was selling was a unique experience for a business or individual to go to a professional baseball game and have the best three hours of their lives. That was like the pitch because to be all in all honesty, the team at the time wasn't, you know, the best team in baseball, baseball, to a lot of people, it's kind of a boring sport to begin with. So I was selling more of the overall experience than the game itself. And that was, and so in terms of what exactly I was selling was tickets. So that's where the, the money came in. It was, they would purchase the ticket for the game, but it was priced based on what experience they were getting. Starting that job, what did you not know? Uh, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about sales. I, I literally knew nothing about sales. So what so, was the learning curve? Was it really steep? Did you make, what were the mistakes that you made? Well, the learning curve wasn't that steep because, you know, in all honesty, sales is not rocket science. It's just learning how to leverage relationships and work with people. Um, the mistakes that I made were essentially thinking that I knew more than people who had been in the position longer than myself. <laughs> a little bit arrogant, you could say. I was, because the Marlins, they had a certain culture and a certain way of doing sales and I disapproved of their methods. Um, it was very, I thought it was an outdated, you know, cold calling system of, you know, put on your headset and make like 150 calls a day and just get people on the line, like numbers game. And my take on it was more personal 
you know, relationships that I, that would snowball into business with that individual and people that that person would know. So I set a different, um, a different mentality of how to do the job effectively. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a mistake that I made in terms of like thinking I knew more than I did. Um, but I still think that I was able to help progress the culture there to one that was less cold call centric. At least I hope I did. So um, would you tie it to the saying, facts tell, emotions sell? Hmm. Um, somewhat, yes. In my experience, I think that the best salespeople are the ones who are able to blend those two things together and present it in a way that the buyer is most um, presented in a way that the buyer can fall in love with it. So, you know, facts to me are a very important part of any sales job, but uh, I think, like I said, you need to have a nice blend. Do you remember the time that we talked about doing business and sales and mm-hmm. you told me that I should make a list of 10 people that I would like to work with? I do. Did you make it? I have five people. So it's still in the making. You're halfway there. But I'm curious who's on your list. Who's on my list to work with? Oh, well, <laughs> you know, not so I don't work in uh, the Marlon sales team anymore. So, you know, my list is different than it would have been there. Um, but I can tell you that my my list is not 10 people. I actually have 250 uh, donors that I am responsible for with my current organization and that's my list that I work with every day in terms of phone calls, emails, meetings. It's uh it's a long it's a long list because thankfully we have a lot of donors that I work with now. If you if you could choose like ten people that you would like to meet. Hmm. Um well I would love to meet Howard Schultz, I think that he would be a good uh, person to meet with. You know, the owner, founder of, he's the founder of Starbucks. Oh, oh really? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think he's probably uh, someone who knows his way around the a, a, a conference room. Um, I would like to meet with Elon Musk, obviously, he's the founder of Tesla. Um, I would love to meet with, you know, this is going to sound random, but uh, Dustin Johnson, familiar with his name. He's a professional golfer. Um, I've been getting into golf a lot. Yeah. I love, I love golf. I've been getting into it a lot lately, and I have some questions for him about how to make my swing a little bit better. <laughs> Uh, he's also a successful business person in his own right. Um, 
And man, this is a fun list. Let's see. I I would love to meet with Megan Markle. Mm -hmm. I think she has a fascinating story. Um, civilian life to the royal family. Curious mm. how that transition's been going for her. I'm sure she probably misses civilian life a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, probably. And I would love to meet um, Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. I believe that she's a inspirational woman that has a lot has a lot of stories to share that would benefit me. You know, Nina, we could do this all day. I have a lot of people that I would love to meet, famous, successful people that, you know, for me personally, I'm not someone who really cares that much about fame or wants to, um, you know, be in the spotlight, but I do respect people that have acquired it through the right ways and through a positive moral uh, worldview. Mm -hmm. so those these people, I think, are doing it in a good way. I mean, it's a, a pretty good list so far. So, <laughs> yeah. So the work that you do for the Jewish National Fund, mm -hmm. how did you get into that? So they were actually a client of mine at the Miami Marlins. And I got to meet the executive director of South Florida through my work with the Marlins. And, you know, one meeting, we had an event coming up and we got together to talk about coffee. And I'm sorry, we got coffee together to talk about the upcoming event. And he said, you know, Jeffrey, before we start getting into this event, let's I have this new position opening up for JNF in Miami, and I want to know if you know anyone who's interested. And he starts listing off the bullet points. And I said, shit, man, you're defining me in bullet point form. And he said, yeah, I know. Why do you think I'm bringing it up to you? And I said, oh, okay. Well, clever. I see what you did there. Um, let me, <laughs> let me go home and think about this. And, you know, I did what, any uh, good Jewish boy does, I called my parents, I called my mom and said, you know, I have this opportunity, what do you think? And we talked about it. And I did my research on the organization and really enjoyed reading what I thought was a truly inspirational um, website. And I went for it, I jumped in. Another, another world where I never thought I would have been working, you know, pre-college or even in college in terms of working in a nonprofit and fundra doing fundraising. That was something I honestly didn't even know was an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how I got in. So the skills that you acquired at the Marlins, were they one-to-one one -one applicable to your new job or how... How does that divert? Yes, they were very, very applicable. And, you know, I think that sales and fundraising are pretty much synonymous. The only difference is that 
fundraising is more of a pull of the heartstrings than sales is typically. Um, now, with the Marlins, there was some heart string pulling. When I say that, I mean basically there was a motion that the consumer needed to have in order to be meeting with me in the first place, but not as heavy as it is in, in my world today. So um, the Marlins job really helped prepare me, but there was a lot of things that I've had to learn over the last three and a half years to be successful in this role. Primarily the emotional side of things, the uh, psychological side of things. I mean, how emotional and psychological are we talking? Uh, more than the average person would think. Because the difference with fundraising is that you are giving someone money for an idea and for a vision that isn't necessarily tangible. You know, mm -hmm. so the Marlins, I would sell someone a $5,000 suite and they would bring 30 friends and they would have a party and watch the game and everything was very in the moment and you know wow i'm getting a good return on my investment now in fundraising it's okay i'm gonna request i'm gonna ask you for five thousand dollars so that you can help me um develop a community in the desert of israel that needs help with their water infrastructure <laughs> much different, more higher level conversation. We're here in Miami, Florida, Israel's thousands of miles away. You know, it's, you can't just walk down the street and see your work, see your money in action. Now you can fly with, uh, with us to Israel and see our work, which I recommend everyone does because it's truly incredible work. But, you know, without being able to go on an airplane and seeing it firsthand, you're really trusting and me and the organization that we're putting your donation to good work. So it's a different, it's a different situation. Do you always work with the same people on your list or do you find, how do you find new people? Is it more word of mouth? And then do you, do you call them? How do you get them to meet with you? So it's a healthy mixture of current donors and new perspective donors. So, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position where I have, uh, so my role is the Florida Young Professional Director. So I oversee boards in Miami, Broward, Orlando, and Palm Beach counties. Um, each of these boards is filled up with dedicated volunteers that help bring people into the organization. And I work with them to, uh, you know, find new members and to host events that will attract people in the community. So that's how we um, get in touch with people. And then in terms of getting people to meet with me and, and actually have a conversation, that's, that's where a little bit of the magic touch comes in with the person-to-person -person skills I may or may not have. I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> Yeah, I know you have the skills. I've experienced firsthand. Why do you say that? How did we meet, Nina? I've seen you schmoozing, so. 
And you gave me a lot of tips and I think you also gave me a lot of, um, you did give me a lot of confidence in that, in that uh, moment to also take next steps. That's why I also asked you to come on the podcast to share a bit more. Cool. And you told me it's very important to create a fun environment. Yes. What's your magic potion to, for a good meeting? So I don't want to give away too much because that is a, a big part of what I've been able to develop. But I'm, I can say that Everyone is a different, um, it's a different level of just what makes their, their engine red. You know what I mean? Basically everyone needs something a little bit different than the other person in order to feel comfortable and to open up. And I like to work, I like to get to know people so I can help provide what they're looking for. So when it's a group of say 50 people, I, I know based on the event, what my friends and colleagues and, and network, like what they're looking for. And I know who to invite to that specific event. So if we're doing like next week, we're doing a um, ax throwing event. This is an, all the new rage in the States. I don't know if you guys are doing it over in Europe yet. Essentially, like you're taking like a, a small axe and you throw it and you throw it down the range at like a target. Basically, it's like a gun shooting range, but with axes. Okay, okay, ideal. Okay, okay, I understand. So it's a big it's a big deal now, and people go to events there. But they have like it's brilliant. They have uh, bars and and drinks for sale, and then axe throwing. Very safe. Very good stuff. So I know that some people in my group have zero interest in that. But I also know that there are specific people that will get a lot out of the event. And because of their good experience at the event, they will become members with the organization, meaning they'll give a donation. Um, I found that most people need the social component before they're able to just say, okay, Jeffrey, here's my credit card. Let me give to the cause. Um, mm. There are some people who could care less about the social side and they say, I love what you're doing. Here's my donation, but um, that's not the, the majority. So I, in terms of making that magic happen, it comes from a level of friendship that I have with all the donors and understanding their needs um, and putting mine to the side most because it's not about me it's about what they want so I've done events that were going into them I was dreading it because I had no interest at all in what was going on but that's what the people wanted and I'm going to deliver so that's the follow that's the that's my my take on it it's about it's a it's you have to be selfless yeah yeah if someone asked you to craft a sales pitch or to give advice on how to craft a sales pitch, what would you tell them to do? How would you tell them to approach it? I'd say keep it short and sweet. 
no one has time to hear a long-winded, uh, you know, personal biography or statement. They just need to hear exactly why you're why you asked them to meet with you and what you're there to talk about. So that's my best advice I can give. You know, if you can't do it in less than a minute, you should rethink it and and not even you shouldn't even talk until you're able to do it under a minute. And there is stages, right? So you have established that relationship, fun environment, mm -hmm. and then there is stages to each meeting mm -hmm. leading up to a deal. How do you steer the conversation towards pricing and money? Mm -hmm. So we call that cultivation. And it's, it's about learning the, the idiosyncrasies of the person you're sitting across from and learning what exactly within the organization speaks to them. So JNF, Jewish National Fund, we have a lot of different projects in Israel. I mean, there's dozens of things ranging from water solutions to fire and rescue services to special needs services to forestry and green innovations. Like the list goes on and on. And it can be kind of overwhelming for people. Um, so I try to help boil it down. And I take this huge organization and funnel it all the way to where the person I'm sitting across from can really understand it and absorb it. And then I can, it's, a, it's a feeling you have where you're like, okay, this person is on my level, they're on my page. Now's the time to ask them to join me in the cause. Mm -hmm. So that part is kind of an instinctual part. You, you can't really teach that part. Um, you have to uh, be able to just feel it. It's purely intuition. I mean, you can be trained in it, but I think that a lot of, I think that some people just cannot fundraise. And that's just a fact of life, unfortunately. You know, I mean, some people, when it, that moment is, is there and you're going to ask for the money, they can sometimes freeze up or they can ask and then destroy their whole ask. So when I say that, I mean, Nina, I ask you to join me at $1,000 to support Jewish National Fund. And then as a fundraiser, you are supposed to stop not say anything and let that person speak next. It doesn't matter. I mean, that can last five seconds, five minutes. You as a fundraiser don't say anything. The next move is on the donor. And a lot of people can't deal with that awkward silence and they ruin their whole thing. So some things can be taught, but other things you just have to have the gumption. Does that mean you need to have the balls? Uh, no, not necessarily the balls. Although it's important in fundraising, but by gumption, I mean like um, the inherent ability to to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Or sometimes we say in the States, like the chops. The like, chops. Oh, like, oh, like that girl's got chops, meaning like she's a natural. 
I see. I see. Right. <laughs> the natural top. Right. Exactly. So, what's your number one tip in closing the deal? I think it would be looking the potential buyer directly in the eye, making the ask, and waiting. And if it's a yes, great, thank you very much. If it's a maybe, then those, that's where I would advise do not give up on it because you should never be sitting in maybe land. Maybe land is the worst place for any salesperson to be in, and you need to get that person to a yes or a no. And if you get them, and if it ends up being a no, okay, that's unfortunate, but honestly, they'll thank you for it too because then both of you can move on with your lives and, you know, it's just a level of respect for one another. Um, so you have to be comfortable and you have to be confident in your ask. That's what you have to do. So if you reach out to, you're reaching out to a potential meetup client or donor in your case, and you're not getting anything back, how do you follow up? What, what should be in the follow-up email? Because you don't want to repeat yourself. You, you, don't, you, don't, you also don't want to be, be annoying or irritating to the other person with your emails. But you do know you have to follow up. How do you do it? So I believe that this, again, is about who you're speaking with. But I believe that our generation, the millennial generation, emails are worthless. Um, either they are, I think that people, when they receive emails, they think, okay, is this work or is this other than work? And if it's something other than work, you can pretty much count that out of their, out of their, uh, limited attention span. We have, we're all working very hard and we all have a lot going on in our lives. So I don't ever email. I personally follow up with a call or text where I know I can reach this person. That's just another thing you have to know who you're talking with, what's the best form of communication. And, you know, sadly, sometimes you do have to be a little bit annoying and just, you know, aggressive and say, look, we had a great meeting. So you're basically what you're explaining is that you had a good meeting and then things kind of, you haven't been in touch since then, right? You're reaching out. Mm -hmm. For the first time. So you're trying to get a meeting. Okay. But the person, after you send this email, they're like, oh, I don't know this person. It's probably, this person is probably going to sell me something. I, mm -hmm. I don't have time to deal with it now. Right. So that's when you have to like follow up and be like, okay, give me a yes or a no, because I don't want to be in the gray lab. Well, yes, you do not. However, you should be strategic on how to reach this person. So, for example, if you have a friend that knows the person you're trying to meet, you should go through that friend to make a warm introduction for you. A warm introduction is always the more effective way to, to get in touch mm -hmm. with somebody for the first time. 
Um, mm. A call. This goes back to what I was saying with the Marlins. Like they would push on me these cold calls and these cold emails, and it's just a numbers game. It's it's ineffective. You know, you could send a thousand emails and get two clients out of it. I don't see the the point in that. I'd rather leverage my network to get me meetings with the people that I want to meet with. And there's, you know, if you go deep enough into your network, there is a connection somewhere in there. It might be remote, but it'll be more effective than just reaching out blind. And if you're really focused on one individual, then I would recommend getting a phone number and trying to call. And if they block your calls or don't get your, your calls, then figure out where to meet them. Like figure out not in a sketchy, you know, creepy way, but like be smart with your strategy of how to meet this person in real life, whether it's at their office or, Oh, you know what you saw on Facebook that he or she is going to an event. Maybe it's smart for you to go to that event too and meet in person. Um, that's always a more effective way to get your name on someone's calendar. So you want to be on their radar. I mean, you want to, right. You want to exist. <laughs> so how persistent, how persistent um, do you, can, well, can you be before it gets irritating? Uh, you know, I haven't been put in jail yet. Um, never been, never been, uh, put on the, what do they call it? Like, uh, uh, do not disturb list or whatever. Um, you can be very persistent and people will be flattered by it because it's like, man, this guy really is seriously dedicated to meeting with me fine i'm gonna cave and just have a coffee with him so I, he gets off my back or hopefully the coffee meeting goes well and then you're doing business together so one way or the other it'll um give you a chance to actually speak your mind to this person um i don't think there's any level of persistence that's too much but if someone gives you a no, then you need to respect their no, and and then you move on. Yeah, because the gray land. Correct. Gray land's the worst. I want to throw a stereotype at you. Mm-hmm. Jews are good with money. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, a interesting stereotype, to say the least. One that's been helpful and hurtful to my people for a long time. So what about what about the stereotype? Is there some truth in it? Did you grow up with a certain did your parents instill a certain mindset about money? And this is why you naturally know how to navigate these situations or basically I'm talking about the, your relationship with money. Got it. So to your point, Jews have um, always been seen in 
society as the other um, throughout the, our entire 3,000 year history. It's, uh, it's an unfortunate uh, fact of the world that those who are labeled as other are, uh, can be demonized and marginalized and um, that is just the way it is. And, and that I, I pray that, that the world will rise above that one day and we'll all be able to come together as one, as uh, John Lennon says. But until that day happens, I'm more realistic about things. So um, in terms of the money in my family and in and my upbringing, you know, I didn't come from a, or from a family that's full of financial advisors or uh, people that are really involved in the markets. Um, I think that's where the stereotype is kind of, it's actually a great example of how that stereotype is complete nonsense, to be honest with you, because Jews are people just like anyone else, that some of them are involved in finance, some of them are involved in art, some are involved in, you know, construction, all different types of jobs. Um, we're not born with incredible money powers. Um, we're just, in general, a very educated people that understands how the markets work and how the world that we live in, the society that we live in functions. And we're able to uh, have a lot of success stories um, from, from our people, but it's not, a, it's not something that like, as a Jewish uh, child, you're taught a different thing than anyone else. Um, so, I hope that answers the question. It just came into my mind because I don't know, and we spoke about this, I told you, like I, I've never, I think you were the first Jewish, Jewish person that I had spent so much time with and I had an actual conversation about so many things <laughs> and um, it was not I was not conscious of it but then preparing this podcast I was like oh it's true there is a stereotype and here I am talking about money <laughs> to a Jewish person so I thought okay I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw it in to see your two cents on on that saying or that stereotype you know, I think it's kind of funny because, as you said, you know, if you had not known that I was Jewish, it wouldn't have affected any of the conversation, and it would just be two people talking about money. Um, yeah. I think I think that's where the stereotype is a dangerous one because, in reality, you know, everyone the world that we live in is one that's driven by money. Whether or not people want it that way or not, that's just the cold reality of it. And um, it's kind of amazing to me that, a, that one people have, the, have for centuries been known as the money people and the ones that cause problems in the world because of their ability 
to have supernatural finance knowledge. Um, I think that that is wrong and, you know, people should be vocal about it. Um, and as you're, as the first Jewish friend you've had, I think uh, hopefully I've helped educate your and your uh, view on the on the subject a little bit. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Because um, I mean, it's just a part of the world that I grew up in. Which was where again? Austria. Austria. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, we have. Uh, yeah interesting past i would um say yeah very sad past you know i that reminds me i my sister had a ancestry.com test done um last week and we are 99 percent uh ashkenazi european Jew, jewish descent and one percent germanic uh descent so had it not been for the uh, Holocaust and everything that happened in, during World War II, I would have been speaking German with you right now. I would have been born in, or Polish, I would have been born in Germany or Poland, as where both my uh, sides of the family came from before coming to America. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a fact, it's, it's a very sad fact that you, had all that not happened, you would have had a lot more Jewish friends growing up. Yeah, and I think maybe this is also, and because my country is so white and so, so many of the same things, we had no colonies, it's all Christian. Um, Insular. Some Turkish immigrants. <laughs> But I think that's maybe that's maybe why I think it's so interesting for me to like you know travel and meet different people and get into their niche worlds. It's um, <laughs> what I, that's what I'm here for, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Greenberg. I mean, basically, it means Green Mountain. Right. Well, that's a funny hit story there. So my family name in Poland was something along the lines of uh Wolfenstein. yeah um something very you know germ germanic you know eastern european and like a lot of jewish immigrants to america when they got here and a lot of them did not speak english so the immigration officers couldn't understand what they were saying for their last name so they said oh another jew from europe okay you're greenberg you're going to mm -hmm. be Silverstein, you're going to be, uh, you know, just bird, green, all these different names that are a color plus whatever. Um, that was all just the way that the U.S. immigration officers brought these people into the country. And it was also an assimilation tactic to say, welcome to America. Now you're going to take a nice American name like Greenberg. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Land of the free. <laughs> so, you know, that's um, like countless thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews had that last name changed when they immigrated to the States. 
So what does Jeffrey Greenberg do to take Jeffrey time? To take my personal time? Oh, I love uh, to go outdoors and do you know, hiking or um, outdoor activities. Obviously here in Miami, we don't have much in terms of hiking. So I do a lot of um, going to the beach and enjoying the, the ocean and going uh, biking. And, uh, you know, I like to play sports and travel is a, is a big part of my life also. I love to travel whenever I can, whenever work allows. <laughs> Do you ever go by yourself, just by yourself? Are you anti-social at yeah. times as well? Uh, I can become, I'm comfortable with myself and doing my own thing. Uh, I have traveled to many places alone. I prefer to be with a friend or with, uh, you know, a loved one. But if it's just me, I'm, I'm also cool with that as well. I'm a, like I said at the beginning, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades. <laughs> so Jeffrey, what's, what's up for you today for the rest of your day? Today, actually, I am headed to a meeting with a uh, current donor and another friend in the community. And we are, going to go check out this axe throwing uh, location in Miami to see what it's all about before I host an event there. So I'm going to test my skills. Oh my God, I really have to do my research on this. <laughs> which, I've, which I've never done before. So wish me luck. I, I think it should be fun. Yeah, do some research. It's, a, it's all the rage these days. <laughs> so good. Well, Jeffrey, I really want to thank you for your time today to take this call. Thank you, Nina. I appreciate it. And, and you know, if I can just say before we, uh, in the, the cast here, for people who want to learn more about the nonprofit that I work with, you can go to www.jnf.org to learn more about uh, Jewish National Fund's work in Israel and all the great humanitarian projects that we undertake. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thank you, Nina. was my chat with Jeffrey. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share. And if someone with a niche profession within your circle should be on the podcast, don't hesitate to nominate them. Hop over to lubiro.com for more news and I'll catch you next time with another episode of That's My Niche.